0: Previously on Drilled.
1: And so I think what happened is they started to realize that this this can actually affect our business. I was very naive. I thought that if they realized that climate change was real, they would start making big investments in renewable energy. It's a huge company. They had a huge amount of profits. Why couldn't they sink some of their profits into a new area, which was going to be new business?
0: In the early 1980s, Reagan replaced Carter in the White House and promptly ripped out anything solar, dismantling subsidies for alternative energy shortly after. But that did not mark the immediate end of research into either climate change or alternatives to fossil fuel. Republicans at the time were still approaching global warming as a science and innovation problem, a business opportunity more than an economic threat. Ed Garvey's tanker project was still underway at Exxon, the company was still funding climate research, and climate science was continuing at various government agencies too. The nation was on track to tackle this global warming thing. Or so it seemed.
2: It seems to me that the fundamental thing that underlies it is this change in what I call the political power within the corporation.
1: I think what happened is they started to realize that this this can actually affect our business.
2: It went from a really heady time to a really time kind of despair, where the company was shrinking, oil revenue was shrinking, and the Bell Labs idea went out the window.
0: I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. Our next partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG One by Athletic Greens. Literally every morning, I take it before I start my day, even before I have coffee. I gave it a try because I felt like my immune system was kind of shot and I had low energy in general, and it has really helped me feel like I am getting all of the nutrition I need. It makes me feel focused in the morning and energized and just ready to take on the day. And no wonder I feel so good. It's got 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients to improve gut health, mood, to boost energy. It's even making my skin look better. I've never been very good at taking supplements or vitamins, things like that. But AG1 makes it super easy. I just make a smoothie with it in the morning. And if I don't have time to do that, I just throw a scoop of powder and water And that's it. AG1 was designed with ease in mind so you can live a healthier and better life without having to do very much. It's my kind of product. I also love the single serving travel packs because when I'm away from home, it makes it easy to keep up with a routine, keep my nutrition up and stay healthy. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free 1-year supply of vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com/drilled. That's athleticgreens.com/drilled. Check it out. Beginning as early as the early 1980s, the various pieces of what would become one of the most complex social influence campaigns ever undertaken were already beginning to come together.
3: The emergence of this kind of I guess I'm gonna call it a public relations technology of political influence, really comes out of the corporate response to the 1960s, and early 1970s social movements. We had a whole series of social movements, Ralph Nader, with this is Unsafe at Any Speed. We have a, a bunch of movements, of course, the environmental movement. There's a movement against toxic waste and, and chemicals in response to Rachel Carson's book. And these social movements initially had a great deal of success.
0: That's environmental sociologist Bob Brühl again. For American companies that had spent the 1940s and 1950s being mostly admired for their contributions to society, the emergence of consumer rights campaigns as part of the social movements and protests of the 60s and 70s were terrifying. They posed both a real and an existential threat to the country's dominant industries. In addition to potential bottom line impacts, these protests represented the country's first challenge to the long-standing doctrine of manifest destiny, the idea that resources belong to the men who colonize them, that nature has been given to us by God for man to use, and that to do or even suggest doing otherwise is both ungodly and un-American. Bruhl has a great example of just how threatened companies were by this shift in the story of E. Bruce Harrison. The man who invented greenwashing.
3: So, the father of uh, environmental public relations is a fellow named E. Bruce Harrison. And E. Bruce Harrison was working at American Cyanamide when his boss comes in holding a copy of Rachel Carson's book saying, It's Pearl Harbor for the chemical industry. And what he's told to do is to go over to DuPont who has a long-term public relations campaign and knows how to deal with this kind of stuff and work with them to develop it.
0: As companies were mobilizing to deal with social movements, factions within these companies began battling amongst themselves too, with some wanting to continue the corporate innovation programs of the 1970s and others seeing those programs, aimed at research in the public interest, as anathema to everything that made American business great. Former Exxon scientist, Moral Cohen, describes this as differing politics within the company. He noticed a shift as the price of oil began to drop. It hit rock bottom in 1983.
2: It seems to me that the fundamental thing that underlies it is this change in what I call the political power within the corporation. They became much more conservative, much more concerned with the business the traditional lines of business, and automatically much more uh, focused on preserving that.
0: Soon after that, Cohen remembers putting his postdoc assistant on a research project. He wanted him to compile an inventory of extreme weather events alongside climate change data. It was the sort of project that would have been totally normal a couple of years earlier, but now things had changed.
2: So another week later, I saw him and I said, uh, Well, have you made any progress? And he said, That's not the kind of project to do here at Exxon. <laughs> I mean, he was already sensing that there was a response in the atmosphere of the research laboratory, probably in response to what was going on in the larger company.
0: It wasn't long before major cuts to research funding began. Richard Werthimer had been an executive at the Exxon Engineering and Research Company, overseeing various projects. One was the Tanker Project, which was gathering important data on the absorption of CO2 in the oceans and what happens with emissions at the equator. By 83, Werthimer had been transferred to the head office and was in on the budget-cutting discussions.
4: The Exxon management desperately wanted to keep earnings up and so that, what do we dump overboard? And research is always the easiest to dump overboard in any financial crunch. I mean, it isn't as, oh, Exxon, were going to go broke. But they really didn't want to cut earnings or show earnings loss. So by this time, I was in New York, and my boss came up to me and said, do you really think we should continue to fund the tanker project? And it was costing about half a million dollars a year. In retrospect, I should have said, Very important that you keep the tanker project. But my boss is pressing me, and it's clear what answer he wants. He wants to go upstairs and say we can cut the tanker project, along with a lot of other things.
0: Ed Garvey was one of the scientists on that project. He had been working on a design for a new lab for it at Exxon's planned Clinton, New Jersey research campus. But that all went out the window.
2: They sold off their different research divisions or transferred the technology to other firms and stuff. Uh, That came... Actually it started in nineteen eighty two. I think they one of the first divisions to go was the solar solar group. I think that was I remember the scientists leaving there being very upset about it. And that all got squashed because all that investment that it was being done at Ed David all got squashed when the bottom of the oil market next and Nixon said, We're done here, we can't spend money like this anymore. It went from a really heady time to time kind of despair where the company was shrinking, oil revenue was shrinking, and the Bell Labs idea went out the window.
0: The company began laying off all the scientists it had hired just five years earlier, and dozens more began leaving of their own accord as it became clear that the Bell Labs of energy idea was no longer of interest to management. In just five years, Exxon had gone from a place of great innovation, truly an energy company, to a fairly standard conservative oil company. If they'd stopped there, it would have been a shame, but we probably wouldn't still be talking about it 30 years later. As Exxon and the rest of the oil industry was turning away from innovation, doubling down on being oil men, the science continued on without them. And then came the summer of 1988, and a catastrophic fire in Yellowstone that seems downright commonplace today. As the news documented the hottest summer on record, a young atmospheric scientist at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies dropped a bomb on Congress.
4: The greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now.
0: James Hansen told regulators and the world that climate change was upon us. It was no longer a question of when is this going to happen, how bad is it going to be? It was here, and it was going to get worse if we didn't do something. And he was not some fringe lefty tree hugger. At this point, Republicans and Democrats were still united in the sense that something needed to be done about global warming, and that it was a science and technology problem one that American innovation could solve. Here's George Bush Sr. on the campaign trail in
5: 1988. Some say these problems are too big, that it's impossible for an individual or even a nation as great as ours to solve the problem of global warming or the loss of forests or the deterioration of our oceans. My response is simple. It can be done, and we must do it. Let's not forget all that we've accomplished, all that we've accomplished since America first concentrated its attention on preserving the environment under a Republican administration back in 1970.
0: This was the moment Exxon had been planning for in the late 70s and early 80s. But by 1988, that planning had been scrapped, along with the leaders who had conceived of it. The research was gone. The alternative energy programs were gone too. Now regulation was hurtling toward the oil industry and oil execs had lost their seat at the table.
4: By shutting down the experiment before it was finished or could be finished, Exxon did lose a place at the table.
0: Something had to be done. Oil companies couldn't just rely on the same old tactics lobbying, advertising, the occasional op ed. They had to ensure that regulation would not happen. And to do that, they needed to hit not just media and government, but science, schools, and the culture at large. They needed to stamp out the ideals that had driven those protests in the 1960s and 1970s, to make people think those protests were a threat to the very idea of America, that the idea of regulating emissions was tantamount to stopping progress, and that was just a thing real Americans did not do. And so, as it was cutting funding for climate science research, Exxon began to wage an information war on climate science.
1: And even though we were writing all these papers, which were basically supporting the idea that climate change from CO2 emissions was going to change the climate of the Earth, according to our best scientific understanding, the front office, which was concerned with uh, promoting the products of the company, uh, was also supporting people that we call climate change deniers. And so they were supporting at the same time they were giving me money to be a consultant. Not that much, but still nice. They were giving millions of dollars to other uh, uh, entities to support the idea that uh, the CO2 greenhouse was, was, was a hoax.
0: In addition to funding various scientists working on so-called contrarian theories of climate change, and supporting think tanks that would fund more of the same, Exxon began shifting the entire industry via the American Petroleum Institute, or the API.
4: The key is the American Petroleum Institute. Exxon had a huge influence, rightly so, in the API. And I think the API changed its tune, and probably other majors um, went along with that. So. I suspect that's how it all happened.
0: Then the oil industry banded together with other industries that might also be impacted by the regulation of carbon emissions. Utilities, car manufacturers, manufacturers in general, even the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. By the early 1990s, they were drafting comprehensive social influence campaigns. Campaigns that go way beyond garden variety lobbying and PR. They aim to shift the entire trajectory of society by targeting specific people or groups of people with messages crafted precisely for them. It's showing up at obscure city council meetings and planting the right people at the right dinner parties. More spycraft than lobbying or PR. It's the sort of thing E. Bruce Harrison had begun working on a decade earlier. Here's our document guy, Kurt Davies, again.
5: This is early 1991 to set the context. The IPCC has been born. We're talking about the Rio Earth Summit coming in 1992. The issue is on people's minds, you know, the summer of 1988 and Jim Hansen's testimony and the burning planet on the cover of Time Magazine. It's, it's becoming an issue. And the Edison Electric Institute, which is all of the utilities and organizations still in existence, still a heavy hitter in Washington. They're the trade association for electric power companies across the country. They team up with the Western Fuels Association and form a campaign that they call the Information Council on the Environment.
0: That document emerged in the mid-90s via journalist Ross Gelbspan and the environmental group Ozone Action.
5: The strategies, quote unquote, include repositioning global warming as a theory, parentheses, not fact, targeting print and radio media for maximum effectiveness, achieving broad participation across the entire electric utility industry. So they have a a, a very exact plan to go national by the fall of 1991 with a media program. And the final strategy is to use spokesmen from the scientific community. And in Arizona, they did, for example, telephone interviews with 500 adults in Flagstaff, Arizona. And the data indicates, quote, 89% say they have heard of global warming, 82% claim some familiarity with global warming, 80% claim the problem is somewhat serious, while 45% claim it is very serious. And 39% back federal legislation without any quantification of cost. And only 22% of those consider themselves green consumers. So it's penetrated, a vast majority have heard of the issue, think it's serious. And the campaign is to reverse that, is to change that. So they've hired an outside firm to design this campaign and as part of the focus group testing of these messages that they're inserting, which are basically, it's not that bad, and it could be um, a non-problem. But they they talk about specifically the target audiences of this, um, this test round that they're gonna do uh, to see if their theory works, that they can move people. And it says, people who respond favorably to such statements are quote, older, less educated males from larger households who are not typically active information seekers and are not likely to be green consumers.
0: Hmm, older men who are, quote, not active information seekers. If you were living in America during the 2016 presidential campaign, that demographic might sound familiar. And to put some of those data points from the ICE poll into perspective, here's a more recent stat. In 2017, 52% of Americans believed the threat of climate change has been exaggerated. That's despite the fact that we have more scientific evidence now and more extreme weather events showing us it's a problem every year. In other words, these influence campaigns have been remarkably effective. And they're still in play today. That's not due to any one campaign, of course, or even one type of influence. For decades, climate change has been the issue on which various industry groups and their PR firms test out tactics. Remember when I called the creation of climate denial patient zero in the modern U.S. propaganda war? That wasn't an overstatement, and we're going to spend the next few episodes unpacking what exactly that means. Basically, Putin's got nothing on America's captains of industry. Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The series was reported by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer and composer is David Whited. Richard Wiles is our executive producer. Our story and concept development consultant is Rekha Murthy. Lucas Lisakowski designed our cover art. Katie Ross, Michael Ann Petrella, and Julia Ritchie provided additional editing. Drilled is supported in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. You can find Drilled wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to rate and review the podcast. It helps us find listeners. Thanks for listening.